Joe Biden visits Vietnam, where he assures the world he has no interest in containing the Chinese. The G20 refuses to condemn Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. And New Mexico's governor says to hell with the Second Amendment. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today at expressvpn.com slash Ben. It's very easy to get caught up in the horse race. And because, again, we are in a presidential pre-year, the presidential year used to start in like 2024, but now it stretches the full year beforehand. It's only September of the prior year, and we are already in full horse race mode. But it's easy to forget that the presidency actually matters. It's not just about all of the lights and the whistles. It's also about, can you be the president of the United States and do a good job? And Joe Biden continues to prove that he is not capable of this. So over the weekend, Joe Biden went to Hanoi, Vietnam. His strategy in Vietnam was to apparently attempt to create some sort of division between Vietnam and China. It was essentially a containment strategy. And this is a strategy that has been pursued in bipartisan fashion by every president for the last 10 or 15 years. The basic idea is you get Japan and South Korea and Vietnam and all of the countries that surround China to basically create a counterweight to China and box them in such that America has allies surrounding China in pretty much every direction. That, that at least is the strategy. And that requires some delicate diplomacy because the fact is that China is a very aggressive country and under Xi Jinping, an increasingly aggressive country. It would also require that the Chinese, you know, have a little bit of fear that the American president is actually going to stand by his word, that the American president is actually somebody who's going to stand up for a particular line. And if a line is drawn and that line is crossed, that the Americans are actually going to do something about it. Well, that is rather undercut when the president of the United States is feeble. And there is no question about this. Joe Biden is feeble. So his entire team put out a schedule of his events yesterday, today. He apparently was going to be in Vietnam yesterday and over the weekend. He flew there and he had a bevy of events and he got on a plane and he headed to Alaska for the September 11th memorial event. I don't know why he's in Alaska for, for the September 11th memorial event. It doesn't make any sense to me. Last I checked, I mean, I was there for September 11th and, and so were you, I assume. And um, you recall that it had literally nothing to do with Alaska. But some, for some reason, Joe Biden is going to be in Alaska for September 11th, because why the hell not? And, um, and this was proof of his virality. This is proof that he was, he was somebody who was durable, and he was going to be somebody who can stand up to the rigors of the job. There's only one problem. By the time he hit Vietnam, dude was asleep, and he just stayed asleep the entire trip. So, for example, Joe Biden's staff had to cut him off in the middle of a sentence because he doesn't know where he is. He started wandering on the stage. No one knows what he's doing here. We talked about we talked about at the conference overall. We talked about stability. We talked about making sure that the third world, the uh, excuse me, third world, the uh, the the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to changes. Had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. He came with me. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Tinkly piano, play him off. It's, it's, it's the Tonys now. Hey, he's getting an award. Just, I'm sorry, your time is up, Mr. President. Just get, the tink, uh, just get Kenny G in the corner with the saxophone. Uh, Joe Biden also said in the middle of this press conference that he was going to bed, which is always a great indicator of just the, the absolute vitality of the presidency. Here, here was Joe Biden explaining that he is going to sleep. Uh, I don't, uh, anyway, I, I just think that they're, other things on leaders' minds, and they respond to what's needed at the time. And look, nobody likes having 
celebrated international meetings if you don't know what you want at the meeting. If you don't have a game plan. He may have a game plan. He just hasn't shared it with me. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. Uh, what? Very encouraging stuff there from the president of the United States, who apparently is capable of allowing a sound to emerge from his mouth only once every five or six seconds before he has to tell people that he is ready for his Betty Bye, his warm cup of milk, and a big, big hug from his night nurse, presumably his press secretary. That, that, is, that is insane stuff. But here is the problem for Joe Biden. He's bad at the job. It's not just that he is physically feeble, which he is, or that he is mentally feeble, which he has kind of always been, and he's just more so now. The problem with Joe Biden is that his policies are garbage and we have aggressive enemies. So today is, in fact, September 11th. There are many lessons we should have learned on September 11th and that we've busily spent the last 20 years unlearning. One of those big lessons is foreign policy actually matters. It actually has consequences. And that if you don't have a little bit of foresight, the consequences can be disastrous. Now, the foresight we did not have in the 1990s is that if we did not stop Al Qaeda in its tracks in 1998 when they bombed the embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, that that would come back to haunt America as Al-Qaeda grew and metastasized and it would end with the death of 3,000 Americans on 9-11. Okay, the, the, what we're talking about right now on an, or, is, is orders of magnitude larger. If you don't stop the Chinese government in its tracks when it comes to its aggressive instincts, we're not talking about, you know, 3,000 Americans dead, which was the worst tragedy on American soil since the Second World War. You're talking about like a full-scale conflagration with the largest physical army on planet Earth. America has the best army on planet Earth, the most technologically advanced army on planet Earth. But if you don't stop the Chinese, people bumble their way into war because of misinterpretation. They think the other side is weaker than it is. Most wars in the modern era get started exactly the way the war between Russia and Ukraine got started. Russia misinterpreted signals from the West that they wouldn't do anything if Ukraine was invaded. And they misinterpreted Ukraine's military strength. And then they invaded. And now we are now in in year two of a long war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Those sorts of misinterpretations are, are created by failures of communication. And Joe Biden cannot communicate. He is not capable of this. And meanwhile, Xi Jinping is becoming more and more aggressive. His entire strategy with regard to China is quite frightening, not because it's bound to be successful or make China stronger, but because it is bound to make China actually weaker and thus more aggressive. I've talked about this before. China has massive problems. We did a YouTube video you should check out in our series Fact where I talk about the big problems that China has, but they include things like demographics. China is completely demographically upside down. They do not have enough young people to actually provide the labor force or the earning force to pay for all of the debt they've taken out. Speaking of which, their debt is extraordinary. If you actually take into account all of the public and private debt that they've incurred, and there's no such thing as a real private sector, everything is backed by the government over there. You are talking about a country that is up to its eyeballs in debt. And you are talking about a country that has now cut off the only mechanism for economic success that was available to it in capitalism. So at least... Prior regimes in China were moving more toward a, a sort of bizarre backdoor capitalism where Hong Kong acted as basically a way to flush money into the system. They would allow corrupt capitalism to corrupt their little, their, their, their wonderful regime of communism just to support it. But now Xi Jinping, he's actually an ideologue and he's like, no, we're not doing any of that. Autarky inside our own borders. Well, as China gets weaker, it's spending more on its military budget and it's going to have to get aggressive on its foreign borders. We'll get to this in just one second. First. I need to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN, it's like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock. 
So you think your stuff is kept private, but you don't really know who's going through your belongings. Could be some weirdo in the back room who's just, you know, sniffing all your clothes. You don't want that to happen with your luggage. You don't want it to happen with your data online either. When you go online without a VPN, internet service providers can see every single website you visit. They can legally sell that information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. When you use ExpressVPN, ISPs cannot see your online activity. Your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. Your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. ExpressVPN is super easy to use. You just fire up the app, you click one button, plus it works on all devices. We're talking phones, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can, in fact, be protected. Secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Ben. Do it today. Get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben ExpressVPN. Dot com slash Ben to learn more. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that when people say free, they should mean, you know, actually free. When you switch to Pure Talk today, you will get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. No four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last, rugged screen, quick charging battery, top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family will save almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro. Switch to my cell phone company. I've been using Pure Talk for years at this point. I can tell you that coverage is excellent. I trust them. You can too. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and switch to my cell phone company today. puretalk.com Shapiro. Okay, so... Xi Jinping is getting more and more aggressive. Article today from The Atlantic, the world's most powerful leaders gathered in New Delhi for this year's premier diplomatic event, the G20 summit. But China's Xi Jinping deemed it not worth his time. His absence sends a stark signal China is done with the established world order. Ditching the summit marked a dramatic turn in China's foreign policy. For the past several years, Xi has apparently sought to make China an alternative to the West. Now Xi is positioning his country as a full-on opponent, ready to align its own bloc against the United States, its partners and international institutions they support. Xi's break with the establishment has been a long time coming. His predecessors integrated China into the U.S.-led global order by joining its foundational institutions like the World Bank and the WTO. For much of his tenure over the past decade, she has kept a foot in the door to the Western order, even as China's relations with the U.S. have deteriorated. China even participated, though grudgingly, in G20 efforts to help alleviate debt burdens on struggling low-income countries. But over the course of his rule, she has now grown hostile to the existing order. He's intent on altering it. His focus on developing alternative institutions Beijing could lead and control. He formed the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to rival the World Bank. He's promoted competing international forums like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, whose membership includes Russia and Iran. He's going to stick around at the UN because obviously he thinks he can militarize it. But the G20 is not one of the places where he is actually flexing his influence because he would like to undercut the G20. The map controversy suggests she's nationalist pursuit of global power could undermine his push to lead a new bloc against the West because he uh, is ticking off, by the way, the, the Indians, for example. But he sees the United States as his chief global opponent. This is being highlighted over the weekend by the fact that China went on high alert after U.S. and Canadian ships went through the Taiwan Strait, according to the Agence France Presse. China said on Saturday that its troops were on constant high alert after two ships belonging to the U.S. and Canada transited through the Taiwan Strait, according to a military spokesperson. This, by the way, is one reason why the United States cutting back its military budget, particularly on the Navy, is idiotic in the extreme. It is true the United States has the world's most powerful Navy by a long shot. It is also true that the United States requires the world's most powerful Navy because many of the shipping lanes that are easy choke points for our enemies 
are very, very far away from us. China doesn't require a deep water Navy in order to challenge the United States. All they require is what they call a gray water Navy in order to ensure that they can basically control the Taiwan Strait. The Taiwan Strait is right in their backyard. It is not in our backyard, obviously. And so this is, this is a problem for us. So you'd imagine that strong American leadership would be something worthwhile. Well, meanwhile, Joe Biden, he's out there saying things like, I don't want to contain China. I don't want to contain. Well, why not? I just, seriously, why not? Why would you not want to contain China? I understand that we're sort of pussyfooting around this whole issue with China. But the reality is that G is not. And taking a more aggressive posture toward China, saying, listen, the way that your regime is currently is currently attacking the rest of the world with its soft power and sometimes with hard power is not acceptable to the United States. We're going to build up our military and we are not going to allow you to use your expansionism to threaten American interests, which do include places like Taiwan. Here, Joe, now, what, what's weird about Biden is that he's he's taking this completely confused approach. So from time to time, he will say things like, if Taiwan is attacked, America will defend, which, as I've said before, is actually not a terrible thing to say. I think it's actually the right thing to say, but it would require an actual dedication to a military budget capable of supporting that kind of brash talk. Biden's talk on foreign policy is generally empty words followed by very little else. And this creates very sticky situations, as we'll see when it comes to Ukraine in a second. Here is Joe Biden saying he doesn't want to contain China. It's less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about. Okay, so, I mean, all of that, he doesn't want to contain China. That I don't know what he thinks he means by that. I really don't. So he was in Vietnam specifically to contain China. We should note here. Right? The, he... That's why he's there. Biden said at a news conference today, we can trace a 50-year arc of progress in the relationship between our nations from conflict to normalization. He was talking to the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party in Vietnam. He says, this is a new elevated status that will be a force for prosperity and security in one of the most consequential regions in the world. There's only one problem, of course, which is that Vietnam is also aligned with the Russians. Literally over the weekend, Vietnam is chasing a secret Russian arms deal even as it deepens American ties. In order for America to have a big umbrella, America has to have a very strong umbrella. That strong umbrella has to include things like making sure that if we think that Vietnam is, is actually going to be weaponized against China, it doesn't buy its weapons from the Russians who are allies of the Chinese. All this would be a lot less complicated if the United States actually took a muscular approach to the world. But Joe Biden doesn't have a muscular approach to the world. He says he does, but then he doesn't fill in the gaps. This is also true when it comes to Ukraine. We'll get to that in one second. First, everybody knows I love my Helix mattress. Have you checked out their most high-end collection, the Helix Elite? Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to bring their customers a truly elevated sleep experience. The Helix Elite collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. I've had my Helix Sleep mattress for seven, eight years at this point. It's awesome. It's the thing keeping me alive at this point. Our baby was up a lot in the middle of the night. Our oldest daughter was up a little bit in the middle of the night. That means when I'm on the mattress, I need to be sleeping. It's the only thing that allows me to continue to bring you this show. Helix has a sleep quiz. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? I took that Helix quiz. I was matched with a firm but breathable mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. Find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Your mattress will come directly to your door, shipped for free. Plus, Helix has that 10-year warranty. You have to try it for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll pick it up free if you don't love it, but you will. They have 12,000 five-star reviews. 
We're one of them here at the Ben Shapiro Show. Helix's Labor Day sale is still going on. They're offering 25% off all mattress orders, plus two free pillows for my listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Use code HELIXPARTNER25. It's their best offer yet. It's not going to last long. With Helix, better sleep starts right now. We'll get to more on this in just a moment. First, we're experiencing a lot of global instability as we plunge into primary season. How are you protecting your family in the middle of all of this chaos? The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, war, political, and economic upheaval dating back to ancient times. That, of course, is gold. It's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold, and Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold can help you create a well-thought-out and balanced investment strategy. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold without paying a penny out of pocket. Diversify into gold today. Just text BEN to 989898 for a free info kit. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to check out Birch Gold today. Text BEN to 989898. Claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold the way that I did. Diversification is always a smart business strategy, particularly in really tenuous times. This is a tenuous time. You should check out my friends over at Birch Gold. Text Ben to 989898. Get in touch with them today. Ask all your questions. Text Ben to 989898 to get started with Birch Gold. Okay, so when it comes to Joe Biden's foreign policy confusion and mixed signals, the same thing holds true with regards to Ukraine. So just to spell out what the United States should be doing in Ukraine, it has been perfectly obvious since nearly the beginning of the war that this thing was going to end in a stalemate, because it was going to end in a stalemate, it made a lot of sense for the United States to basically go to the Russians and say, you're going to keep Crimea, you're going to keep parts of the Donbass, we're going to give security guarantees to Ukraine, and everybody's going to go back to status quo ante. That was always what the deal should have been. It was always what the deal was going to be. The United States does, does have an interest in degrading the Russian military. And the truth is, the money that we've spent in Ukraine, contra public opinion, that money has actually been money fairly well spent. We've degraded the Russian military dramatically. They no longer have the capacity to cross other countries' borders. Their threat to NATO has been tremendously mitigated, which is good for our allies in the region. And by the way, a lot of the money that we've spent is in fact coming back to us because proof of the use of those weapons on the battlefield means, for example, that over the weekend, Poland announced that it was going to spend about $10 billion in terms of buying American military armaments. Yeah, all of that can be true. And still, there needs to be an off-ramp here because hundreds of thousands of people are dying in a war and the borders aren't moving very much. And everybody keeps talking about a Ukrainian breakthrough. Okay, when it, when it happens, then I'll believe it. But basically, you have two choices. One is you arm the Ukrainians to the point where they are capable of actually just defeating the Russians throughout Ukraine, which would mean presumably giving them things like F-16s. Or you're not going to do that, in which case you should be looking to cut some sort of deal. But instead, the United States and its allies have cut sort of this halfway measure where they say Zelensky is going to lead the negotiations, which means no peace because Zelensky is incentivized by his people correctly so, not to give back an inch of land. And meanwhile, the Russians have no incentive to leave because they're not being physically forced out of Donbass or Crimea. And what are they going to do? Just retreat for no reason? And so this thing is just going to go on and on and on. Meanwhile, the longer it goes on, the less support the United States is going to have for this thing going on for prolonged periods of time. So Russia, for example, which is part of the G20, they hailed the G20 as a success. According to CNN, Russia on Sunday deemed the G20 summit in India's capital of New Delhi an unconditional success, a day after the meeting's final declaration stopped short of explicitly condemning its invasion of Ukraine. Speaking at a press conference at the end of the summit, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the summit was a success not just for India, but for all of us. The final group statement said, quote, all states must refrain from the threat or use of force to seek territorial acquisition, but it didn't single out Russia. The statement acknowledged, quote, there were different views and assessments of the situation. Ukraine then criticized the G20's final declaration. Ukraine's foreign ministry spokesperson wrote on Facebook, Ukraine is grateful to its partners who tried to include strong wording in the text. At the same time, the G20 has nothing to be proud of in the fact 
that Russia's aggression against Ukraine continues. Obviously, the participation of the Ukrainian side would have allowed the participants to better understand the situation. The principle of nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine remains as key as ever. Meanwhile, Antony Blinken is trying to pretend that this watered-down statement is actually something positive and good. Here's Antony Blinken trying to explain this to Jake Tapper. That is significantly weaker language than last year's joint statement, which called for Russia's, quote, complete and unconditional withdrawal, unquote, from Ukraine. Why did the U.S. agree to a watered-down declaration that does not even condemn Russia by name or explicitly call for Russia to leave Ukraine? Jake, the G20 countries in the statement all stood up for the importance of territorial integrity, sovereignty, uh, and that's very clear. I was in the room when uh, all the leaders spoke today with, with President Biden, uh, and it was very clear from everything that they said uh, that uh, not only do they want to see this war end, but they want to see it end on just and durable terms. And it was also very clear that the consequences of Russia's aggression are being felt throughout uh, the, the G20 countries and throughout the developing world. Okay, this is all a mess. It's all a mess. And it's a mess because this administration is extremely messy. When it comes to China, are they aggressive or are they conciliatory? When it comes to Russia, are they aggressive or are they weak? What exactly is it they're attempting to do? Nobody can actually explain what, the, what they want the final product to look like. Well, when it came to Ronald Reagan's approach to the Soviet Union, his approach was very simple. We win, they lose. Now, there could be negotiation within that framework, but the framework was, you are our enemy. And we are going to aggressively confront you in this sphere until you bend. When it comes to China, we refuse to take that view because, again, we've integrated our economy with theirs, which is one of the world's worst, worst measures. By the way, you can actually understand why we were doing that from the 70s up through 89. But after Tiananmen Square, there was no excuse whatsoever for the West trying to integrate its economy with China. The economic liberalization of China, which was partial in the extreme, never amounted to political liberalization of China. And meanwhile, with regard to Russia, we're sending mixed signals as well. So on the one hand, we're not providing Ukraine the support necessary to actually win in Ukraine. But at the same time, we're telling them you're leading the negotiations. So interminable war. That is what all of this means. And the longer this goes on, it doesn't favor democracies, by the way. Autocracies are favored by long wars. Why? Well, because very often when it comes to long wars, as we've seen in Afghanistan or Iraq, democracies lose faith in these wars. They don't like them. Democracies... You wake them up and we get really tough and we get really big and really strong very quickly. And then we mash you. But if we don't mash you pretty fast, an autocrat can outlive you because he's not changing administration. All it takes for American foreign policy to swivel on a dime is a new election. Everyone knows this. And so it's just a matter of outlasting the other guy, whether you're talking about Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan. The only wars America wins successfully are wars that are pursued in very short order with very clear objectives and where you use the amount of force necessary to achieve that objective. Those are the only wars America wins. And those are also the only wars America prevents is where we make clear to everybody, if you cross X line, we will smack you so hard you will be living in the Stone Age. That, And then you can negotiate within that framework. But we're not going to even come close to that line. If you come close to that line, we're going to knock your head off. Diplomacy is always the velvet glove, but there, if there's no iron fist inside the velvet glove, what does it matter? And when you're vacillating and when you're wavering, when you're being deliberately unclear or maybe not deliberately unclear, what exactly is everyone supposed to take away? from your behavior. In just one second, we'll get to the area where Joe Biden believes he actually does have international unity and international leadership. First, how often do you pray? Well, the answer is probably not often enough. So I am an Orthodox Jew. That means that I pray three times a day. When it comes to the big holidays coming up, it's gonna be more than three times a day. 
honestly, without the prayer, my day would be pretty unlivable because you need to commune with the divine to give you a sense of purpose, to give you a sense of comfort and all the rest. Well, if you're having a hard time with that, or regardless of your religious practice, if you actually want to make it better, well, Hallow can help you. Hallow is an incredible app that offers a unique approach to prayer and meditation. Unlike other meditation apps, Hallow is tailored specifically for people of faith to deepen their relationship with God. The Hallow app is filled with studies, meditations, reflections rooted in Judeo-Christian prayer practices. A lot of our Christian employees use Hallow regularly. You can pray alongside Mark Wahlberg, Jonathan Rumi, who portrays Jesus in The Chosen, even some world-class athletes. You can access the number one Christian podcast, Bible in a Year, with Father Mike Schmitz on Hallow. With features like progress tracking and streaks, Hallow will help you stay motivated and make prayer a regular part of your daily routine. Set prayer reminders. Invite others to pray with you. Track your progress along the way. If you're looking to deepen your relationship with God and improve your mental and emotional well-being, try Hallow for three months free at Hallow.com slash Shapiro. That's Hallow.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so when it comes to the thing that Joe Biden believes he has unity on, it, of course, is not Ukraine. It, of course, is not China. He thinks that he can create global leadership on global warming. Well, this is always nonsense. Whenever somebody says that they're going to forge global leadership on global warming, it's absolute nonsense. It is a it is a toss away line to the left. China ain't participating. Russia ain't participating. India ain't participating. And guess what? So long as they are pumping carbon into the atmosphere, we've been lowering our carbon emissions. And they're going to keep increasing them because they are in competition with us. This notion of global cooperation against a against a force like global warming, it's not going to happen. And so who is Joe Biden speaking to when he says things like global warming is an existential risk? Who's he talking to? It's a convenient way of him bashing his domestic political opponents because he's not going to say this directly to the Chinese. The Chinese will just lie and continue doing what they're doing. Here was Joe Biden talking about global warming over in Vietnam. And the only existential threat humanity faces, even more frightening than a, than a nuclear war, is global warming going above 1.5 degrees in the next 20, 10 years. And we're in real trouble. There's no way back. Again, when when you are in doubt and you have nothing else left to go to, if you are on the left, the place that you go is global warming because it is an unbeatable enemy. And the real enemy that you're attempting to beat is your political domestic opponent, which is why Joe Biden, again, he is, he is so out of it. He's so out of it. So yesterday he was, uh, again, going off on what he called climate deniers. And he again brings up this lying dog face pony soldier routine. Dude, get a new frame of reference. I mean, it's amazing. This is the same party where it's like our foreign policy isn't stuck in the 1980s. Your president is stuck in the 1880s. Here we go. You just always basically saying the Indians, come with me, we'll take care of you, we'll be everything will be good. And the Indian scout, the Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the Union so says, he's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. Well, there's a lot of lion dog-faced pony soldiers out there about, about global warming, but not anymore. All of a sudden, they all realize it. it's a problem. What is this creepy old man whispering about? I don't know. What is he even talking about? Uh, by the way, this is not, in fact, from a John Wayne movie. It's from apparently a Tyrone Power flick called Pony Soldier from 1952, which if your frame of reference is 1952, you shouldn't be president anymore. I'm just going to point that out to you. Like 1952 was seven years after the end of World War II. Okay, I, I, I was personally born 32 years after this movie came out that he's currently referencing. And it's not because he liked to watch oldies. It's because he watched this in the theaters. I'm not kidding. Joe Biden was born in the year 1942. He was 10 when Pony Soldier came out. Okay, he actually watched this with his family, I'm sure, in the theater in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1952. Joe... 
This is how crazy this is. I'm 39 years old, okay? Joe Biden, like simple math would suggest, Joe Biden, I was born in 1984. Joe Biden was born 42 years before I was born. 42 years, that is two generations before I was born. And he is still the president. This entire generation needs to leave the political stage. Go, go, enjoy the rest of your retirement, please. But of course, the idea that, that all of his political opponents are the root of all evil because they're quote unquote climate deniers. Uh, you know what I noticed? I noticed that the climate deniers in the United States are not in fact the problem. What I noticed is that it's the regime in China that actually is the problem. But you don't have the balls to stand up to those people. So instead, what are you doing? You're trying to cram it down on Americans for no apparent reason, which by the way, is going to end with more economic turmoil. As Fox News reports, President Joe Biden's administration finalized plans for a program it argues will further reduce air pollution from heavy-duty engines and vehicles across the United States. Truckers argue that the proposed standards will crush the supply chain and put the American food supply at risk. The new emission standards put forth by the EPA are significantly more stringent. They cover a wider range of heavy-duty engine operating conditions compared to previous standards. The rule officially went into effect March 27th of this year. It's going to be implemented for new trucks sold after 2027. But truckers are saying that the new energy standards are going to make it way, way, way more expensive to ship all of your foods. You, you like Biden inflation? Wait for Biden environmental inflation. Here's trucker Mike Kucharski talking about Biden's EPA regulations. You know, my concern is if, the, if this technology fails, the entire supply chain will be dead in the water. And failure is not merely inconvenient. It, it, it's catastrophic. It's catastrophic. This is not an option, uh, especially for the food supply chain uh, of America. You know, these changes were also made without checking the supply uh, the supply chain challenges that we have. They just decided without, you know, consulting with, with, with the truckers or the supply chain. You know, the supply chain has a safety stock, but the rule's always been, uh, especially with food, you know, the less uh, stock, the, the less of, you know, the more profit they make. So the, the, the food supply stock is, 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 is super thin. To give you an idea, if all the trucks stopped in America, we would run out of, you know, the stores would start running out of food within uh, 48 to 72 hours. Uh, it would be very quickly. The EPA says that the technology that they are requesting for the new rules will cost between $2,500 and $8,300 per vehicle. The American Truck Dealers Association says it's $42,000 per truck. That's insane. Kacharski said a new clean diesel long-haul tractor typically costs in the range of $180,000 to $200,000. A comparable battery electric tractor costs upwards of $480,000. That is a $300,000 upcharge. So while Joe Biden is jabbering to the Vietnamese, about how his political opponents at home are climate deniers, he's ready to cram down on you exponentially higher food prices, all to make himself feel better because, again, it's not going to mitigate global warming in any real way. All that global warming is happening right now if you believe in man-made global warming, thanks to China and India. And meanwhile, Joe Biden's economy continues to exist right on the threshold of, of a major, major problem. At the very least, we are now in a period of economic stagnation. You're seeing this in the size of the IPOs that are currently happening. So initial public offerings are very often a measure of the durability and sort of the sort of the explosiveness of the American economy. Well, right now, all of the IPO valuations are dropping. So Instacart is currently targeting a valuation of roughly $8.6 billion to, to $9.3 billion in its IPO. In, in 2021, it was raising money at a $39 billion valuation, Instacart. Now, part of that is because 2020, 2021, a lot of people were buying via Instacart because of COVID and all the rest of this sort of stuff. But Part of this is because there's just a lot less loose money lying around. I know a lot of companies have been thinking about IPOing and now they're looking at the market and they're saying, I'm not going to IPO. I'm not going to go public because I just can't raise enough money in the public markets to make that worth my while. 
The company's stock market debut, according to the Wall Street Journal, is a bellwether for the IPO market, muted for much of this year and last. It will be closely watched by investors, bankers, lawyers, and traders. It will follow the highly anticipated offering by British chip designer Arm LTD, whose shares are expected to debut this week in the biggest U.S. IPO of the year. And again, Instacart is an excellent company. I and mean, my wife uses Instacart all the time. The fact that excellent companies are now lowering their IPO expectations by a factor of four over the course of the last two years, I should tell you something about the state of the market. And meanwhile, when it comes to Joe Biden, all the Hunter Biden stuff is still lingering over him because the reality is that the Hunter-Joe relationship is extremely corrupt. It's been corrupt for 30 years. There's nothing new under the sun here. The New York Times is already trying its latest cover-up. And it's all about how much Joe Biden loves his son. Just true... So much love. Katie Rogers, earlier this summer, President Biden was feeling hopeful. His son Hunter's lawyers had struck a plea deal with federal prosecutors on tax and gun charges. It seemed to the president the long legal ordeal would finally be over. But when the agreement collapsed in late July, Mr. Biden, whose public image often belies a more mercurial temperament, was stunned. He plunged into sadness and frustration, according to several people close to him who spoke on condition of anonymity. Since then, his tone in conversations about Hunter has been tinged with the resignation that was not there before, his confidants say. Now, as the Justice Department plans to indict Hunter on gun charge in the coming weeks, White House advisors are preparing for many more months of Republican attacks and the prospect of a criminal trial in the middle of the 2024 presidential campaign. Republicans have cast Hunter's troubles as a stew of nepotism and corruption, which the Biden administration denies. But there's no doubt the Hunter case is a drain politically and emotionally on his father and those who wish to see him reelected. Oh, the sad old man. That's really the story here is is, it's so sad. He just wanted to be a delightful father. He just wanted to be a loving father, which is why he was sending his son to foreign countries to pick up bags of cash and then getting on the phone with foreign oligarchs in order to help him achieve those bags of cash. According to the New York Times, as his father and brother showed a talent for public service, Hunter envisioned himself as the financier supporting the family business of politics. For a time, it was work that made him proud because it made him feel needed. Decades later, though, he was known to complain about the responsibility. A person close to Hunter said those complaints were exaggerated, expressed at a time when Hunter was feeling bruised. Of, of course, they're going to say that because if you point out that Hunter actually texted his own daughter that he pays half of Pop's bills, that sounds a little more corrupt. The whole thing, of course, this whole article is about how, how terrible it is for Joe Biden that his son is really, is really so screwed up. President Biden tries to keep his son close. When Hunter accompanied the president on a trip to Ireland in the spring, he traveled on Air Force One and slept on a cot in his father's hotel room. When Hunter flies to Washington from his home in Malibu, who stays at the White House, sometimes for weeks at a time. I'm like his security blanket, Hunter told The New Yorker in 2019. Allies of the president have deep respect for the bond, but have privately criticized Biden's apparently inability to say no when Hunter sought to pull him into his business dealings. Some allies of the president say his loyalty to his son has resulted in wholly avoidable political distractions. Oh, that, that's what it is. He just loved his son too much. That's the real story. Okay, by the way, that dog ain't gonna hunt. The corruption of Hunter and Joe is perfectly obvious to everyone, which is why when Joe Biden keeps shuffling away from questions about Hunter, everybody is skeptical. That's another thing that happened the other day. Here he was in Vietnam, shuffling away from the questions once again. Mr. President, Mr. President are you worried about your son being indicted, Mr. President? Yep. There's that guitar music. There's that lounge music coming up to shield the old man as he stumbles off the stage. Whew. This administration is a disaster area. In just one second, we're going to get to the situation in New Mexico, where apparently the governor of New Mexico thinks the Constitution doesn't apply to her. First, my team is constantly talking about delicious all-American meat from Good Ranchers. We love Good Ranchers because American meat can be free. They source the best meat in America and deliver it to your door. Even better, right now they're offering two years of free ground beef to anyone who subscribes. That is a $480 value. 
Not only are you going to get the best cuts of meat from a trusted 100% American-sourced company, you're also going to lock in your price for two whole years when you subscribe to any of their boxes. That's two years of free, high-quality ground beef and a locked-in price. No other meat company guarantees you 100% American meat and that locked-in price because no one else is good ranchers. You can save on your beef, chicken, and pork. Lock in your price today. Every single steakhouse quality cut is individually wrapped, flash frozen to make mealtime easy. Subscribe to Good Ranchers, get that guaranteed price, and a trusted 100% American source of your favorite cuts. I can tell you their meat's really good. They made me a kosher steak one time. Amazing. Go to GoodRanchers.com today. Use my code BEN for 25 bucks off and free ground beef for two years. Remember, subscribe to any box. Lock in your price on America's best meat for two whole years as well. That's GoodRanchers.com today. Use my code BEN for over 500 bucks in savings. Subscribe to Good Ranchers. It's American meat delivered. Also, Convicting a Murderer, the first true crime docuseries ever released by Daily Wire Plus, premiered this weekend. It got over 7 million views, a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics are raving about Convicting a Murderer, calling it one of the best documentaries of 2023, saying Candace, quote, delivers everything you could want from a docuseries in the first three episodes. She absolutely blows up the lies portrayed by the filmmakers of making a murderer. She exposes the filmmakers for what they truly are. Critics had something to say about that as well saying it was about time. The Netflix false crime industrial complex gets what they deserve. So people are waking up to what Hollywood propagandists are doing. And Candace is to thank for that. If you haven't begun the series, episodes one through three are available on Daily Wire Plus right now. We'll be dropping new episodes every Thursday. Do not wait. Head on over to dailywireplus.com slash watch to start that series. If you're not a member, simply go to dailywireplus.com slash subscribe to join today. Well, meanwhile, apparently the governor of New Mexico is under the weird misimpression that the Constitution does not apply in New Mexico. New Mexico governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, has has now announced that um, she has issued an emergency order suspending the right to carry firearms in public across Albuquerque and the surrounding county for at least 30 days in response to a spate of gun violence. This is according to the Associated Press. She said she expects legal challenges, but she was compelled to act because of recent shootings, including the death of an 11-year-old boy outside a minor league baseball stadium this week. Lujan Grisham said state police would be responsible for for enforcing what amounts to civil violations. But uh, the Albuquerque police chief, he's already saying, like, I'm not going to enforce that. Like, this is this is unconstitutional. Here is the New Mexico governor claiming that emergency powers give her the ability to simply suspend constitutional law. You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your, your carrying license? With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right, in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? So um, this is when people say political fascism, this would be it. OK, when, when a when a member of the government simply declares via emergency order that they can violate willy nilly constitutional rights, like full scale constitutional rights based on no actual emergency. OK, we're not talking here about a tornado is hitting the state. We're not talking here about there is some sort of giant earthquake. There's no emergency here. This is just her saying, I don't like that people got shot. Therefore, I'm banning you from exercising your constitutional rights. This is You could do this for anything. And she could say, listen, we have a national epidemic of hate. You've seen this, by the way, in places like Chicago, where the former mayor, Lori Lightfoot, tried to declare that racism was a public health emergency. You could see somebody like this idiot governor saying, 
racism, hate. They're a public health emergency. And I'm declaring an emergency. Therefore, you are not allowed to say the following words in my state and then just list them off. That'd be a pretty significant First Amendment violation. Or she could go even further, presumably. She could just say, you're not allowed to use the internet because the internet obviously has facilitated so much violence. So you're just not allowed to use it anymore. I've decided in my state that you're not allowed to use that, not on the basis of any sort of elected legislative session, but on the basis of her own judgment that an emergency has now been constituted because she doesn't like the thing that's happening. Well, if all of your rights are simply dependent on one lady deciding that she really doesn't like the things that are happening in the world, that is tyranny. That is the essence of tyranny. And it's amazing that you would try this, but it was always going to happen. I mean, the minute that we shut down everything in the world for COVID and then we maintained that for two years, even as the data emerged that it actually wasn't the sort of national emergency that was being suggested, it was only a matter of time before Democratic officials tried to do something like this. It really was. By the way, I'm, I'm going to say something I, I almost never say, which is points to Ted Lieu. Ted Lieu, I mean, again, credit where credit is due. Ted Lieu said, I support gun safety laws. However, this order from the governor of New Mexico violates the U.S. Constitution. No state in the union can suspend the federal constitution. There is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the United States Constitution. I mean, that's a welcome change. And then uh, even David Hogg, who is one of the world's larger idiots uh, and got into Harvard University on the basis of his movement about gun control. Even David Hogg, who's been wrong about nearly everything ever, he says, I support gun safety, but there is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. That, good, good. I mean, like, I'm glad that they're, they're starting to realize that. Now we'll see how broadly they apply. Because again, if this is the new way that Democrats make law, then you could do it on the basis of anything, right? Joe Biden and the rest of the Democrats have declared that climate change is the greatest emergency facing humanity, period. It's greater than, than COVID, than nuclear war, than anything. The greatest emergency facing humanity is, according to them, that the planet is getting warmer by a few degrees. And thus, what couldn't they justify in the name of all of this? Well, the Mexican, the, the New Mexican governor, Lujan Grisham, she is saying that violators could face civil penalties and a fine of up to $5,000 under the order. Residents can still transport guns to some private locations like a gun range or a gun store, but the firearm has to have a trigger lock or some other container or mechanism making it impossible to discharge. There is no way this remotely stands up in court. There's just no way. It, it, it remains amazing to me that the same people who declare that rule of law is deeply important to them, many of them are going to ignore this and, and look the other way and pretend that it doesn't matter. That January 6th was an assault on the rule of law, that it overthrew constitutional norms. Well, I mean, how about just ignoring the Constitution entirely as the New Mexican governor is doing pretty amazing stuff over there. Okay, meanwhile, Donald Trump was in Iowa, back to the horse race. So Donald Trump was, was over in Iowa over the weekend. So it was Ron DeSantis. And um, it was sort of mixed reactions, I would say. So Trump visited an Iowa frat. The frat was naturally quite warm to him. Here's some of the video. Got some excited college students over there for him. You doing, President Trump? I'm doing good. Now what do you think about this? This is some uh, turnout. I guess the youth likes Trump, but we love Iowa. We just left South Dakota last night. It was an amazing evening. We got a wonderful endorsement, as you know, from the governor, and uh, we're here, and this reception's been incredible. He's going to go over to the uh, they have the barbecue pit, throw a couple burgers on it, looks like. I don't know if, Corey, we got a good shot of that. That's a nice one. Wow. 
Wow. Trump doing some some retail politics, which, you know, good for him. Uh, He also went to the Iowa football game and there was a bit of online controversy that broke out over whether he was being booed or whether he was being cheered. So here's sort of the raw footage. And as you will hear, the answer is some of both. You can, you can hear, you know, people. This is when he went down into the stands. He spent most of the game not in the stands. He went, uh, he was in sort of a luxury box. People were flipping him off and all the rest of it. But you can see there are a bunch of enthusiastic people there in Iowa as well, which of course is not a shock. He did win Iowa in the last election cycle. The latest polls from Iowa are showing Trump up big time. The Iowa State Civics poll that was released just a few days ago has Trump up 37 points over the rest of the field. The NBC News Des Moines Register poll has Trump up 23 points over the rest of the field in Iowa. Now, Iowa is notoriously fickle. You'll recall that very rarely has the Iowa caucus winner actually been the person who went on to win the nomination. In fact, the last time that an Iowa caucus winner in the Republican Party went on to win the nomination was 2000, when George W. Bush narrowly defeated Steve Forbes 41 to 31. In 2012, it was Rick Santorum, who, of course, was not the nominee. In 2016, it was Ted Cruz, who, of course, was not the nominee. So, you know, what happens in Iowa? Trump is more vulnerable in Iowa, but it's not going to be enough for anyone to defeat him in Iowa. Maybe that creates the impression that the God bleeds a little bit, but that's really not where all of the heavy lifting is going to be done. The same thing, by the way, is true in New Hampshire. So New Hampshire also has a spotty history of actually nominating presidents. So in 1996, Pat Buchanan, you'll remember, won the New Hampshire primary and he didn't end up winning the nomination. Bob Dole ended up winning the nomination. In 2000, John McCain won the New Hampshire primary, throwing a scare into George W. Bush. In 2008, McCain, who's very popular in New Hampshire, won. Mitt Romney did win in 2012 and Trump won in 2016, but... It's a bit of a spotty record in New Hampshire. If somebody wins Iowa and New Hampshire, that's going to throw a scare into Donald Trump. But really, Trump's last stand, if he were to show any vulnerability, and right now this is all speculative, considering he's leading by leaps and bounds in both of those states, would be South Carolina. South Carolina has been entirely predictive of the Republican nominee every year but 2012. So in 2008, it was McCain. In 2000, it was George W. Bush. In 96, it was Dole. In 1988, it was George H.W. Bush. In 1980, it was Reagan. So... Again, right now, it's kind of a moot point because Trump is leading in all of those states. With that said, if he is going to show vulnerability, obviously the place you're going to first see it, not only in terms of calendars, but in terms of polls, is going to be Iowa, where other candidates are spending an awful lot of time. Speaking of the Republican hopes in 2024, according to Nate Cohn over at The New York Times, one of the problems for Republicans is that the supposed electoral college advantage that Republicans enjoy, which is the way that they've won a few presidential elections, 2016, 2000, Those electoral college advantages, meaning that there are certain states where by winning a a slight majority, they're able to pull off a narrow victory. That seems to be disappearing. According to Nate Cohn of The New York Times, the early polls show Donald Trump and President Biden tied nationwide. That means Trump has a clear advantage in the battleground states that decide the electoral college. He says, it's a reasonable question. It's one I see quite often. In his first two presidential campaigns, Trump fared far better in the battleground states than he did nationwide. But there's a case the, the electoral college advantage has faded. In the midterm elections last fall, Democrats fared about the same in the crucial battleground states as they did nationwide. Over the last year, state polls and a compilation of New York Times Siena College surveys have shown Biden running as well or better in the battlegrounds as as nationwide, with the results by state broadly mirroring the midterms. In other words, the, the purple states are getting more purple. It's not that purple states are red and blue states are more blue, which is how you actually win these narrow elections. It's that purple states are getting more purple to blue and that red states are just getting more red. So that, that is a bit of a problem. Again, when you look at the battleground states, they, they voted more similarly to the United States in general in 2022 than they did back in 2020. So, for example, in Wisconsin in 2020, overall, 
the they they voted at a at a D plus five rate in the twenty twenty election, and uh, and then in the House vote they voted almost even Republicans and Democrats. So the popular vote did not reflect exactly the sort of electoral vote. But that gap is basically shrinking now. And you're, and you're starting to see that over and over and over. The, the, the gap is shrinking. That's a real problem for Republicans. As he points out, Democrats held their ground in battleground states, allowing them to retain the Senate and nearly hold the House. Nationally, Republican House candidates won the most votes by about two percentage points. The margin was almost identical in the presidential battlegrounds like Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where Republican House candidates also won by a couple of points. So in other words, sort of the national numbers are more reflective, are, are more reflected now in the battleground states. That's not something that's going to help Trump, obviously. Now, it's possible that could be false, but you're banking against whatever numbers you have. That I'll say it again. It is certainly possible that all the numbers are wrong and that they're off. It's also possible that they're not. And so it is worthwhile taking all of that into consideration. I've been looking at a lot of the polls recently and some of the polls that are very positive toward Republican contenders are relying on a couple of things that I think are very likely to not materialize during the actual election. One is minority voters coming in at 5438, for example, for Biden. Republicans are considering that means, hey, look, that means Biden is going to win only 54% of the vote. No, what it means is Republicans are only going to win 38% of the vote. The ceiling on Republican support is in that poll. It is not that the rest of that support is going to go to Republicans or even that's going to split evenly. Because remember, once again, 54 plus 38 is 92. That's 8% of the vote still outstanding. That's not going to split 4-4 Republican Democrat, which means that the gap is going to be much larger. The other gap that I think is going to be much much rectified is a lot of these polls right now are, are rooted in lack of Democratic enthusiasm. That's true because they're very unenthusiastic about Joe Biden. It is also true that one Donald Trump is on the ballot after we've had 12 months of coverage of his supposed criminal foibles. Democrats are going to crawl over broken glass to vote against Trump. That's just a reality. He gets out turnout for Democrats. He gets out turnout for Republicans. Ideally, if you're a Republican, what you want is to lower turnout for Democrats and increase turnout for yourself. Donald Trump increases turnout for both. So you know, right now, for example, the, the recent CNN poll that showed Trump and Biden dead even had the Democratic enthusiasm at 61% and the Republican enthusiasm at 71%. I do not think that maintains for the entirety of the election cycle. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things I like. Over the weekend, I read Lionel Shriver's new novel, Should We Stay or Should We Go? Uh, Lionel Shriver is one of the best living novelists. She's really terrific. A lot of her work is excellent. Uh, she's most famous probably for um, for her book that was made into a movie of the same name starring Tilda Swinton. We need to talk about Kevin. Uh, this one, should we stay or should we go? The, the premise is there is a couple at 51 and the woman's dad has died of Alzheimer's. Uh, and it talks about how much they suffered during his last years because it's very difficult to care for a parent with Alzheimer's. And so she and her husband make a pact that on their 80th birthday, they're going to commit suicide together. And very, very dark sort of premise. But then what the book does is in various chapters, it sort of spells out iterations of what happens next. They hit 80. Do they decide to do it? Do they decide not to do it? Does one decide to do it and the other decides not to? What happens if there is some sort of magical medicine that is created that reverses aging? And how does that impact life? It's a wildly creative and, and really interesting book. And it is all rooted in the secular modern notion that the only thing that matters on this planet is sort of the life you have on this planet. In other words, higher purpose can only be divined by you. It's only something that, that, that is internal to you. And you can see how that doesn't work out to really any advantage throughout the course of the book. Like the one, the one part of the, the one chapter that Lionel Shriver didn't write because Lionel Shriver isn't a religious person. She's, she's quasi-conservative on a bunch of issues, but she is not a religious person. 
Lionel Shriver never writes the chapter where the couple actually finds religion. How does that impact their decision-making process? It's, but, but it is a fascinating book and it spells out a lot of these sort of qualms that secular modernism faces. Okay, other things that I like. So Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, the, uh, the tennis player, he is the greatest of all time. There's no question. Uh, it, it is not just that he is an amazingly skilled player. Uh, you can make a case that Roger Federer was a more skilled player in a lot of ways than Novak Djokovic. But Novak Djokovic is the most determined player I've ever seen maybe in any sport. He has like Jordan-esque levels of determination. It, there's an amazing thing that he does if you if you watch his matches where there comes a point where he almost just hones in and he's like, I'm just done here. I, I'm not I'm not going to allow the other the other person to win. So he won his 24th major at the US Open over the weekend. It was, it was an incredible thing. Novak Djokovic, that guy would have at least another three majors were not for the fact that he was banned from participating in majors for about a year and a half for not taking the vax. And why should he have taken the vax? He's 36 years old and he's in the best shape of any living human being. It's absurd to think that he was going to be killed or significantly injured by COVID. It's it's a ridiculous thing. So he, he didn't. He remains in excellent shape. And at the age of 36, he's beating guys who are almost literally half his age. He won last night over Daniil Medvedev who uh, he, he beat you know, in, in a couple other majors in the recent past. 6-3, 7-6, uh, Here's a little bit of the footage. Oh, oh boy. Well, we'll take you to the modernist shot of the day, and it was saving the match point. point. Oh, the match. match point to get to number 24. There were a lot of shots that were highly impactful. But here's the final one. I love that there's a Moderna shot of the day for the unvaxxed Novak Djokovic. So that is an amazing thing. Moderna shot of the day. Brought to you by Moderna. Oh, so, so good. So ridiculous. So um, well done to Novak Djokovic. And this is not going to be his last major. That dude's going to win probably another four or five. He, he is just that good. If, unless his body breaks down. All righty. One thing I hate today. So obviously the situation in Morocco is terrible. For, for those who haven't been following, there was a very, very large earthquake, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Morocco. At least 2,000 people have died. More than 2,400 have been injured. Three days of mourning have been declared nationwide, according to the Washington Post. The, the buildings basically all just collapsed. In the small town of Amizmiz, buildings were still collapsing on Sunday afternoon, nearly 40 hours removed from the Friday night quake. In one home, traces of its former inhabitants, according to the Washington Post, could be glimpsed in the ruins of a second-floor ceiling, velveteen blankets, suitcases, rugs, a sagging mattress. Survivors had moved to higher ground, pitching tents on stretches of flat, dry land. Aid is trickling in, but it is a full-on disaster area, obviously. It is a good reminder that we are extraordinarily privileged to live in a first-world country. Living in an extraordinarily wealthy country means that when a disaster hits, very few people die. I remember being in California during the Northridge earthquake. And the Northridge earthquake of 1994 was a, was a large earthquake. That was a 6.7, right? So this one is 6.8, slightly larger than the Northridge earthquake. It was, it was frightening. The total death toll was 57. And that was way back in 1994, right? That, that was almost three decades ago at this point. And, uh, and still, yeah, again, that, that is the privilege of living in a first world country where people actually build for the possibility of disaster. And it's a reminder that when disaster strikes countries that are much, much poorer, the consequences are much more significant to life and limb. All right, guys, the rest of the show continues right now. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll jump into the mailbag. If you're not a member, become a member. Use code Shapiro at checkout. Get two months free on all annual plans. Click that link in the description and join us.